Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection and vulnerability, which are handcast in London's Hatton Garden with recycled metals. Founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time, each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Today, I would love to tell you about one of their core and my favourite pieces, the Leone Medallion. At the beginning of Dante's journey into the dark wood, he is confronted by a terrifying lion. His head held high with a furious hunger, it seems as though the very air is trembling in fear of the wild beast. This encounter comes close to forcing Dante to turn away from the perilous journey. It is at this point that Virgil, his guide, appears to offer him counsel and companionship. When exploring Dante's hometown of Florence, Roche stumbled on an old Venetian coin in a market with an engraving of a lion which she felt so clearly depicted the one which Dante had described. Roche took this as inspiration and created her own medallion, which was worn around her neck as a secret message to herself to be brave. Each lion piece enters you into the Alighieri Lion Club, of which I am an absolutely proud member. The Leone Medallion is worn as a symbol of strength and courage to carry with you on all your adventures. You can visit this collection at www.alighieri.co.uk. And just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the filmmaker, writer and niece of the artist we will be discussing today, Raquel Cecilia Mendieta. Known and acclaimed for an array of films, Raquel's work has been screened at film festivals and art museums worldwide, such as Frameline in San Francisco, BFI's Flair Festival in London, the UC Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive, the Gropius Bau in Berlin and so many more. But the reason why we are speaking with her today is because she is also renowned for her recent films on her aunt, one of the most important artists of the 20th century, Anna Mendieta, whose influence is still very much felt today. Raquel has published extensively on Mendieta in exhibition catalogues, including The Earth Speaks, Covered in Time and History, the films of Anna Mendieta, Energy Change, Connecting to Anna Mendieta, and She Got Love 
She is also the Associate Administrator for the Estate of Anna Mendieta's collection and was responsible for overseeing the fantastic digital restoration of the artist's works on film and video. She is currently and excitingly finishing a feature-length documentary about the life and art of Anna Mendieta, more to be discussed later, as well as developing a scripted series on the artist's life. But most importantly, the day this episode will air will be the 36th anniversary of Anna Mendieta's death, who died aged 36 in 1985. And that is why I couldn't be more honoured to be speaking to her today. Raquel Cecilia, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me here. Such a lovely introduction. So thank you so much for coming on. It is such an honour to speak to you, especially at a time like this. Now, I must recommend every single listener to watch your films on Anna because not only do they make me see a side of her that I never knew, but they bring her as a person, her spirit and her work alive. They are so moving, so captivating, whether they be following you searching for her sculptures in Cuba or when we hear Anna's voice talking about her work. I first discovered Anna Mendieta's work when I was about 20 and I remember just being enthralled by the just sheer beauty, depth, meaning and kind of wholeness to them. It was the silhouettes and the way they connected with the earth and resituated art in a different context than what I've always known. They floored me then and still do today. So I want to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with the work of Anna Mendieta? Really, when I'm confronted by a work, I feel her. I feel her presence. And I never thought about it until there was a retrospective. I think it was probably at Traces in Prague. And it could have been just because that was the premiere of Nature Inside, the short documentary that I did that shows a lot of her works and you hear her voice. And so I had been downstairs listening to her voice. And then I went upstairs to look at the exhibition and there were all of her works. And I could feel her there in the room with me. And it was really hard to leave. Like I remember on that trip, we, we kept making plans to go and see the city. And I kept saying, I need to go back to the museum to check one more thing that I forgot, just because I wanted to feel that again, you know? So when I see her work, it's, it's really feeling her, her energy, is, it speaks through the work, for me anyway. It's very powerful. Totally. I mean, is there one work or series in particular that strikes you the most? Not really. I've had different experiences with each of them. And... It seems like as I investigate a work or as I research something, I kind of find a clue about something and then I go down this little rabbit hole trying to discover where she did it, why she did it, or if, if there's a piece of missing information that we have to find. And then I get obsessed with that work or that series. And then once it's discovered, then it's like, okay, now I can put that one to rest. And then what's the next one? You know. <laughs> so it really depends on where I'm at. They all have so many different meanings to me. The last works that she did in Rome, particularly, are just so powerful for me. The tree trunks standing there, they just really have her presence in them. They're very beautiful. Yeah. I've also just noticed behind you, you have one of her works as well. <laughs> I can see it in the screen. But I mean, in your film, Whispering Cave, I mean, you speak about really, really beautifully your close relationship with Anna and it's incredible. I mean, were you always familiar with her work growing up or how did you get to know them or also reconnect them later in your life? I actually didn't know them growing up. Obviously, I knew she was an artist. She was my art teacher. And I was very proud of that, you know, almost <laughs> like to the bragging point of, you know, yes. this is my aunt, you know. <laughs> but I don't remember really seeing her work. I never went to see a show of hers, even though when she lived in New York City and we lived in, in upstate New York, we never went to any of her shows like at AIR Gallery or anything. So the first time I really saw her work 
was after she passed and seeing the work that my mother was, you know, cataloging everything and inventorying everything. And they were preparing for the, the retrospective at the new museum. And when I saw that exhibition, I had the experience that a lot of other people had, I found out later on, just like seeing all that work together in one room was just so powerful and so inspiring. I mean, for me, who was, you know, young, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life as an artist and seeing all those pieces were really, it was just like a kind of a reconnection with her, like to see the works because she is so alive in them. And then through the years, you know, it was all through my mother, really, because, you know, we had works hanging up in the house at that point. So there were several of her silhouettes in the house. And, you know, I had my favorite ones. A lot of them were Tree of Life. But then, again, it wasn't really, you know, a deep connection to them. So when I started working with the estate with the films and the videos, that's when it started. And you're seeing images constantly and starting to investigate them and look at them in a new way. It's just kind of seeped deep into your soul, you can say. So that's really where it started is when I started working with the works themselves. Amazing. But before we get back to your work and documentaries on Anna, I also want to go back to the beginning of her life. So she was born in 1948 in Havana, one of two girls, the other being your mother, and they also had a younger brother. Tell me about their upbringing and do you think art was always present in her life from childhood? So she was born in Havana and her grandmother actually lived in Cardenas, which is outside of Havana. And her grandfather was a doctor. And so they had a house in Baradero in the beach where they would spend all their summers. And so it was very family oriented. They lived in a house in Nuevo Vedado, which is in Havana. And the house was kind of like a split, like upstairs, downstairs. So they lived upstairs. And downstairs was her cousins and her aunt and uncle. So they really grew up with their cousins as sisters almost, you know, because they did everything together. So it's in all the photos you can really see. It's not just my mom and Anna. You also see Elvira and Polly. But during that time, it was really like these four girls doing everything together. And art was present in a way that her mother, my grandmother, was she did painting in her teenage years and really beautiful paintings, you know. And also their grandmother, she did painting. And apparently, according to Elvira, she told me how she won some prestigious award from France for her painting. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the <laughs> art was in their blood. Oh my God, wow, you know? this is amazing. Yeah, yeah and, and their father, Anna's father, Ignacio, was also an artist. Like, he did woodworking. And he wanted to be an artist. He went to art school. And basically, his father humored him and said, fine, you know, get it out of your system kind of thing. And after... He did so many years. It was like, okay, now it's time for your real schooling. You have to become a lawyer. So he went and studied law and became a lawyer. And he left art behind, although he didn't really leave it behind because he was always doing woodwork and like beautiful carvings out of wood. I mean, by hand, just himself. Like, you're like, wow, you made this, you know? (laughs) So it really was in her blood. Art was around, but it's not, it's like what you did for fun. It's not, you know what I mean? You didn't do it like as a career. That was... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. God forbid. But when Anna was 12 years old and your mother was 15, I mean, the two were among thousands who were then sent to America on their own. I mean, they arrived in Florida, then settled in Iowa. I mean, can you tell us about this part of her life and also what it must have been like for them? So yeah, 1961, September 11th, they were sent to Miami to a Camp Kendall with thousands of other children. And Basically, this was kind of like a holding place. 
And it was to protect the children because they didn't know what was going to happen in Cuba because of the revolution, the, the counter-revolution. And this is something that had happened many times before. This wasn't like a new thing. You know, like their own father actually had left Cuba and had gone to school in Miami while he was a teenager. I mean, Cuba is like has a long history of revolutions. So this wasn't like an abnormal thing. They just thought, oh, we'll send you away while things get settled here and then you'll come home. So the, the girls, the sisters really thought of this as, oh, it's a temporary thing, you know, not, oh, this is forever. No one thought that. Or they, I mean, if they had, they never would have sent them. They just felt like they were doing the right thing. Anna was actually really wanting to go. She was, you know, she was, she was 12 <laughs> years old on the brink of 13, yeah. very rebellious. I mean, she was always like that prankster, kind of a rebellious <laughs> person. And so she was excited to go and get away from parents who were telling you what to do and all that. And she thought it was going to be like this fun vacation. Whereas my mother was older, she was 15, and she kind of had a little, a little more of the realities of it. So she was really, you know, upset, crying, not wanting to go. But then she was the older sister, so she had to be the good example yeah. so that Anna would feel comforted. So when they got to Miami, they would see this board that every day told the children where they were being sent to because they couldn't keep the children there. You know, they had to put them in homes and such. And they were told that they were going to go and live with a nice family. And um, my mother asked if they would have a piano because she played piano and would they continue their schooling in the same way? They were reassured that, yes, all of this would happen. And my mother had a letter with her that their mother had written, basically saying that the two girls had to be together, like they couldn't separate them. So they had that reassurance, I guess. But still, the fact that they had no idea where they were going, what it was going to be like, they didn't speak English. Even though they took English in school, it was kind of like, you know, when you take a language in school and you just learn like, hola, como estas? Muy bien, gracias. And then you get there and you're like, what are you saying? I have no idea. You know, like, can you slow down, talk in the accent that my teacher used? And, you know, they had no idea what people were saying. Um, They had to learn English, like quickly to fit in and to, to keep up with their schoolwork which they did very well. So they were randomly sent to Iowa. They had no idea where that even was. And it was winter by the time they were sent there. So, I mean, imagine going from (laughs) Cuba to Miami, which is, you know, in in Miami, like everyone was talking Spanish because we were surrounded by all these Cuban children. It was kind of fun. And then the reality set in of like, oh, now you're here, you are, the two of you. It was hard. It was hard for them. Yeah. I mean, how do you think she then adapted to American life? Because I'm right in thinking in high school, she actually kind of decides to then pursue art because then she obviously goes on to enroll at the University of Iowa. I mean, I'm fascinated by this experience here. I mean, can you tell us about how she actually transitioned from being at high school into university wanting to study art? Yes. Like I said before, she was a very rebellious type of girl (laughs) and always wanting to do things that were not the norm. You know what I mean? Like she was just kind of like a pioneer always just like, yeah. So in high school, she, she ended up having like a nice experience, you know, like the beginning was rough because they were in these orphanages and foster homes. And then when it became apparent that they were stuck here, you know, that they really better settle in and figure it out because they weren't going home anytime soon is when I think things started turning around, especially for Anna, because she was put with a nice foster home at, when my mom graduated from high school, she went on to college. Like my mom started to study painting first and she went to college for painting. And so Anna at the same time started taking art in high school and was deciding I want to do this as well. So it's kind of like becoming like the family 
profession, you know, like knowing that their father was had done yeah. art and like now my mother was doing art and then Anna was going to do art. Just insanely, insanely talented. <laughs> but it's like also like going against what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Well, here we are in America. We can do whatever we want. You're not here to tell us like, oh, we can't be artists. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she didn't start at the University of Iowa. You know, she she had to kind of make her way there to prove that she had the grades and to work you know she had to work to support herself and to pay for her college she she had her mother wasn't here you know she had yeah. no, she only had my my mother her sister with her so when her mother arrived it was five years that they had been separated it was at the same time that she was you know starting to make her way towards university of iowa and she started with painting she took it very seriously but she also had her backup plan of taking french yeah because she always was very practical so even though she was like this rebellious kind of person she also was very practical, you know, like knowing like you have to have a job, you have to pay your bills, you have to, there's certain things you have to do. And so how will I support myself as an artist? Well, I can always like teach French or I could, like when she was younger, she had this fantasy of being a flight attendant, you know? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like well, I can travel the world. At least I can travel the world, you know? So, <laughs> but in the painting program, it wasn't as easy as, she thought it would be because she wasn't really accepted as a painter. Like she wasn't painting in the style other people were doing. Yeah. It's like her paintings were very rudimentary, you could say, like just very, I mean, she, it's like, again, like her rawness, like what you can see in the future, like these Silhouette series, and you can almost feel her handprint on these works, wow. right? It's like her paintings have that same energy in them. Like God. to me, I find them fascinating. Like oh I'm just God. surprised no one has wanted to do a show about her paintings and yes, like kind please, of can they do that yes can we like <laughs> like to see the paintings like in correlation like with other works to, to see Incredible. how they echo each other because that's what makes artists amazing artists yeah when you can look at their work and you just know that is a Frida Kahlo like you yeah. just know when you look at it who it is because of their hand and like yeah themselves they put in it and it's the same thing with Anna's works when you look at those paintings you just say, oh, yeah, that's Anna, of course, you know. <laughs> so she got her actual undergraduate degree in painting, and then she went on to do her master's. And she yeah. had to really fight to get into the, the master's program. They didn't want her. She talks about it. On some of her interviews that she did, like she talked about how she had to really fight to, to get into these programs and how it was a problem for her when she realized that she didn't want to do painting because she felt you know, almost not embarrassed, but kind of like, oh, here I am like fighting to be a painter. And now I'm like, eh, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I want to do this instead. <laughs> she was always the pioneer. But I love this idea that she was kind of like never satisfied with it. And I think you think it, the quote in your film is that, you know, the paintings weren't real enough. You know, she wanted to get something else. I mean, how does she then make that transition from working with painting to using the body? Yes. Well, really, it started with Robert Wilson, who was in Iowa, and he was doing these performances. Yeah. And she got involved with that. I mean, a lot of friends that she knew and other students were doing these. And she was interested. You now she says, I'm going to check this out. Because <laughs> she was always searching for something. And, you know, it's like, you know, when you're an artist, you know when you're on the right track. It's like you feel it. It's an yeah. instinctive. For her with painting, she probably felt like something is not quite clicking. I'm close, but it's not quite there. And what she called magic. Like she said, <sighs> you know, I'm looking for this magic. And once she started working with her own body, that's when she felt it. Because she could feel it running through her. So her thesis for her, for her master's in painting was actually like a performative work. 
instead she's like, no, look at these photographs of me. <laughs> that's that's the work, you know, deal with it. <laughs> Give me my Amazing. degree. <laughs> but I mean, also at this time in the early 1970s, she was making these works called facial cosmetic variations where she added prosthetics and wigs to her face and then facial hair transplants where she added facial hair. I mean, to think that Cindy Sherman was doing this a decade on, I mean, they just feel so new, so pioneering. Can you tell us about these series? Yes, it is interesting when you look at this group of works that she did in that time period, because she actually could have gone in that direction. Like She could yeah. have stayed doing that type of work throughout her career. And, you know, as many other women artists did from that time period, but she didn't, you know, for whatever <laughs> reason, it's like her work progressed to something else. If you really look at her, her entire body of work from like those early works, like even from the paintings to those early performative works, working with her body, you see the transition and how organic it is of what her search was and when she found it. And then it just kind of takes off and like a flower, like blooming. I'm happy she did that, that she didn't just continue with that. I mean, it would have been interesting to see as well, but maybe it's like, that was it. Yeah. She explored it as much as she could and it kind of just, okay, done with that. Now what's next? It's always what's next, right? I know, but they're just like the top of their game always. They're like the most pioneering things always that she's just reinventing everything, constantly turning the wheel. Yes. For me, like I love when I look at the work and then I start reading about the things she was learning, the things she was looking at, the people she was talking to. Like when I was interviewing people for the feature documentary and I would just hear these amazing stories and it just would highlight different things that I didn't know about. Like when you're talking about the untitled, the facial hair transplants, you know, the work with the mustache or the one with the beard you know, really going back to Marcel Duchamp and the work with the Mona Lisa with the mustache. And then his other piece, Etant Donné, it's kind of like you're looking through this kind of like peephole at the woman splayed. And it's she did two pieces oh, yes. that kind of echo that. Like she did the door piece where there's like the door with the little hole. And then you see her mouth kind of in her face kind of squishing against this little hole. And then also the rape piece. Yeah. When you see the one in the field with her body splayed over that log. Really, the, the way that her body is laying really does echo that piece by Duchamp. She was taking things that are in art history and references, but then pushing it and also making it her own, yeah. you know, and exploring that, which is interesting and exciting. The thing is that about Anna is that she was always working so quickly. I mean, <laughs> she was a very fast person, you could say. I mean, she was... She talked very quickly. I mean, in fact, she she spoke so quickly. Like if you listen to her in an interview, for example, it's so hard to follow her because she's jumping two steps ahead and then going back to finish and then ahead again. It's like her brain was just like, choo, 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 you know, I mean, if she were like a child today, they would just definitely slap the label on her of ADHD. They'd be like, boom, this kid is ADHD. Give her some Ritalin and call it a day. She was just always running like so quickly. When she talked, she was moving her hands to express herself and just talking really fast, especially when she was excited about something and really wanting to get something across. Like with the works, you know, I, I really don't think that titles were important to her also because if she wasn't showing them like in a gallery setting, you know what I mean? It's like, you're not really taking the time to think about, oh, what is this work called? You're just making the work, creating it and then moving on. A lot of her titles are actually descriptive titles. Like she would label things so that she knew what they were like sweating blood. Like, yeah. is that the title? I doubt it. I mean, that's what she wrote on the film canister. It's just what it looks like. It's, exactly. <laughs> 
But I mean, the same time that she was doing Untitled Rape Scene and Untitled Facial Hair Transplant, I mean, she began to incorporate the body in different ways. I mean, she created her first Silhouetta, the series that was to last between 1973 and 1980 in various locations. And I love the film that you made, Nature Inside, really follows these. And you hear her say she was possessed by nature. I mean, these first ones that were created with Yagul, an archaeological zone in Oaxaca, Mexico. I mean, can you tell us about the genesis of these works? And I mean, how did she use the body to connect with the earth? I feel like it was a progression. With her work, some artists really work in a linear fashion. Yeah. And some work more in a spiral. And I, I feel like Anna didn't really do either. It was like a patchwork, like kind of a hopscotch back and forth, or I don't know, because it's like she would do something and then continue on to the next step. But then the next step would be going two steps backwards. And then the next one would go three forward, maybe like yeah. a stitch in sewing. Yeah. And that's her themes were like that. And her work is really like that. And she would revisit things. Yeah. And I think with the body, it was like that. It's like she really started using her body in the early 70s, which is why she called herself a sculptor. You know, yeah. if she had to define herself, she said, I'm not a, a painter. I'm not a, a filmmaker. I'm not a photographer. If anything, I'll be a sculptor. And it really goes back to that idea of like the body as sculpture, the earth as materials to make sculpture. So with the body, she went from these kind of ideas of transformation of body by putting on a mustache, you know, from someone else's hair or pressing your face against a glass, transforming it again to putting blood on it. So all these things had to do with transformation of the body and then taking that as well using the earth, right? So you're using the earth to transform the body. And that's when I think probably is when she got really excited. It's like yeah. you feel it's like the connection, like you're mm. onto something. And it's, it's also very interesting when you think about the earth and dirt. Like right now, I keep hearing about the earth and how important it is to be touching earth because it's so healing for the body, the mind, the soul. There's healing properties in the earth. And probably she felt this. It was definitely not intellectual, right? Yeah. It was like a body memory. Yeah. I mean, like being a child in Cuba, growing up in the beach, going into the ocean, touching sand, building sand sculptures, playing with pine needles. It's like body memory, right? So it's yeah. like you're in the earth, your body, your nude body now in the earth is feeling this and then remembering. It's like a reconnection with the earth saying, oh, yes, I remember. This feels like home. And I think probably this is what happened with her when she first started doing that. It was that reconnection of that feeling of healing and being reconnected with the earth, with her homeland, what sent her on this trajectory of melding her body with the earth. And she talks about it a lot, wanting to reconnect with the earth. So Imagen de Yagul, which she considered her first silhouette, she made it in 1973, which seems early. When you look at other work she did in 73, she was still working with blood. Yeah. So it's not like she did Imagen de Yagul and said, okay, that's it. I'm going to now use my body in the earth with flowers. Yeah. You know, she continued to explore the other pieces she was doing until she kind of exhausted that and then started integrating again, nature, nature, nature. I love this quote by her. She says, I use the earth as a canvas and my soul as an instrument. And it's just so perfect. It's so perfect. And I'm also fascinated by the significance of using an archaeological site as well as one of the first places to actually make these silhouettes. I mean, Again, in your film, you know, she talks about she's inspired by ancient art and sort of has that power and magic. I mean, what do you think the significance of using an archaeological site is in Mexico as well at that time in 1973? Well, it's probably all connected to that idea of her love for ancient art. Like you would be covered by time and history, right? Yeah. So 
what other place would you be covered by time and history than in some ancient site, right? I mean, it's like it, the work is not as meaningful if you were just laying on a sidewalk in New York City, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you walk through these old cemeteries right? and in Mexico in places where they haven't destroyed everything with new, you know, ugly buildings, it's just you can <laughs> feel your place in history walking down those paths and down those roads and through those buildings or through those sites. So when you're walking through like Yagul, and you see these rocks, you know, how long have these rocks been here? And then you see those little sprouts like of grass kind of coming through, pushing through the man-made rock. It's kind of like man against nature. It's a very emotional thing where you see like a weed pushing through, like a beautiful flower, let's say, pushing through a, a man-made rock that's like all weathered and worn. And it's like that idea again of like, why are we here? How long are we here for? What are we going to leave behind? Like when I'm gone, will flowers kind of push through me? I mean, it's all connecting in that way. That's just so beautiful. Yeah, completely. And I mean, she's kind of imprinting her body into the earth as well. I mean, burial pyramid, this fantastic image that I'll share in the show notes, but it, it's it's almost like she's at one with the earth as well. I mean, you can hardly notice her body sometimes as well. Yes. And it's hard to see until you really look and say, what am I looking at? You know, a pile of rocks. Oh, there she is hiding yeah. under these rocks. It's kind of like the breathing with the earth. And she did another piece that was similar to this called Genesis Buried in Mud. And she considered that one of her favorite pieces, by the way. I think it's just because of the experience she had while making it. But I mean, they both have to do with this idea of birth, rebirth. You're one with the earth and it's like you're having that experience of being reborn through it and you're kind of emerging from the earth. So that the burial pyramid has that that concept in it. And then she takes it another step further in Genesis Buried in Mud where she was in like a a, a carved out silhouette in the earth that she had made for some other pieces. She lay in there and then the mud was packed all around her. So she was completely covered in mud. And then there's just like dead leaf, fall leaves around that. So when you're looking at the film, you're kind of like, what am I looking at? And then you start noticing the, the dirt is breathing yes. up and down very slowly. Oh and she was God. in there for three minutes covered by worms oh and bugs God. for art. It's like to have that experience of like being under the earth and breathing with the earth and being one with the earth. Yeah. But I'm also really fascinated by the fact that, you know, she was going to Mexico for these. I mean, where else was she performing these early silhouettes? Yes. Mexico was very a crucial part to her discovery of this idea of melding with the earth because, you know, going back to Mexico though, I mean, imagine she'd lived in Iowa since she'd left Cuba. And it's the first time she's traveling somewhere where, People look like her. They talk like her. She's surrounded by a different kind of landscape. It, it became like a surrogate home. She finally felt like she belonged. I mean, when she was in Iowa, growing up, that was one of the hardest things is feeling like she was other yeah. because she was dark skinned. She had a thick accent. At first, she didn't even speak English. And she was very vocal, as I said. <laughs> you know, she talked with her hands. Brilliant. I mean, definitely not like any Iowan. I mean, these people all had like blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah. So being in Mexico, she talked about it, how it wasn't really the landscape because it's like Mexico does not look like Cuba. But I think it was more, it was a deeper connection, like more emotional. Like again, like here, you know, talking Spanish, feeling accepted and just being somewhere else. You know, yeah. sometimes as an artist, when you trigger your, your senses with something else, you, it just inspires you. Yeah. You know? 
Totally. I mean, I'm I'm so interested in this. I mean, this fantastic 1977 artist statement that you kindly sent me. She talks about this sense of magic, this knowledge, this power. And she says, you know, for the past five years, I have been working out in nature, exploring the relationship between myself, the earth and art, using my body as a reference in the creation of the works. I'm able to transcend myself in a voluntary submersion and a total identification with nature through my art. I want to express the immediacy of life and the eternity of nature. I mean, they're just such powerful words. <laughs> It is. She was such a good writer. <laughs> I mean, most artists can't write about their work like that, but she really tapped into that. She's like a poet. <laughs> she was, well, she was a poet, you know. Was she? Yeah, she did. She wrote beautiful poetry. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, she came from Cuba, spoke Spanish, but she learned English. She learned French. She yeah. later learned Italian. I mean, oh she was God. very interested in other languages, other histories, and, and she was a hard worker. I love this quote because it has such emphasis on her intent of expressing herself with nature, that people need to understand her work on a deeper level. That people need to know that it has to do with connecting with the earth. And it's very timely for today. You know, look at our planet. Yeah. I mean, if she were here right now, she would be appalled. Yeah. I mean, she would be out there with Jane Fonda right now, like rallying <laughs> people, like, you know, <laughs> to, yeah. to do something to help save the planet. She was an environmentalist, really. Yeah. Totally. But I mean, then in the 70s, she completely switched and actually moved to New York City. I mean, where she joined the AIR gallery in 1978. And I should add for any listeners who listen to Howardina Pendel, we talk about her friendship with Anna and the exhibition that Anna curated with Free Right and 21. And it was amazing. I mean, how did New York City open up her artistic career? Well, she, she had traveled to New York several times before she moved there. And when she was still in Iowa, you know, she created so much work in Iowa. I mean, Iowa was really also very inspiring to her. She had specific sites that she would do her work in, and then she would travel to Mexico. I'm sure that there was, it became a, you know, apparent that she had to move to New York if she wanted to take that next step as an artist. Like living in Iowa was going to be difficult. I think she just really felt like it wasn't enough for her. Like she just, I mean, she was teaching. That's another thing people don't really know about her is that after she got her, her master's degree in painting, she started teaching. She got her teaching certificate so that she could, you know, her accreditation to be able to teach in the public school system. Talk about practicality. Oh, so she was actually your art teacher. She was actually my art teacher. Oh my God. You know, like in a public school, you know. No. Um, and yeah. So she was art teacher, like all the way until she moved in 1978. She was an art teacher um, where she worked all year. And then in the summer she had off, she would go to Mexico. So she was an art teacher to elementary and then to junior high, high school students. I mean, imagine having her as an art, an art teacher. <laughs> I mean, she did some very interesting pieces with her students. Like we actually discovered some videos that she made with her students at the Henry Sabin School, which is the school that I went to. Unfortunately, I'm not in any of them that I can see anyway, and I don't remember being in any. So oh it must have been God. after I was there. But they had this video camera at the university. And so she borrowed it and brought it to the elementary school and was doing these really progressive, like really interesting projects with incorporating the students with basically things she was learning and bringing them to these students. So they were using their bodies, you know, they were making these interesting masks out of paper mache and doing kind of like these performative pieces in the playground. Oh my so, God. Yeah, those are really, really, <laughs> really exciting to watch because you can just see her thinking and her process like in those works even. Oh my God, okay, we need a painting show. We need her like work with schools show. <laughs> yes, yeah. Actually, some of them have been seen at a children's museum in, in Harlem, which was really beautiful. That's I took my so daughter cool. to see it. It was a few years ago and it was just, it was so lovely to just see all these children interacting with Anna's works from that time. It was, and she would have loved that. I mean, she yeah. she did not want children, but she loved children. Like She was like a child in that way because, you know, she herself was just like very animated and very curious. So moving to New York City was 
it was just like the next step. You wanted to make it as an artist. You moved to New York City. It was hard for her. I mean, the first year was really hard for her because she felt very isolated. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that it was also like echoing what she felt when she first came to this country and was in those foster homes. But she didn't have her sister there with her. She was alone. So she was, you know, and she was, she was kind of like a needy person, <laughs> you know, so I'm sure she was on the telephone a lot to a lot of people. But that was the thing about Anna, like she was always talking. So it's like, if she wasn't talking to somebody, she was on the phone or something, you know. <laughs> but she still had time to sort of make the most incredible body of work and write yes, and everything. I know. So. It's just like, I don't know and how teach, she had time to do, do anything. And, yes. and learn all these languages. I mean, it's. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. And she came to New York City and she, she got food stamps. Because she didn't have enough money to make it, like to pay her rent. She got a job at Food, the restaurant that was run by artists and visited by artists. And so she, it was a good job for her because, you know, she was a terrible waitress, I'm sure, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> probably chatting to everyone too much. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, artists would come through there and she would um, get to meet people while also like making some money. Yeah. And then she had all the people that she knew that she had met while she was in Iowa. I and mean, she was very good at uh, keeping in touch with people. She would send letters and postcards to people. And so she had all of that and, and people loved her. Someone once said something to me, which is just so revealing and so perfect. They said, you either loved Anna or you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> there was no in between. You just loved her or you were like, no, I don't like her. I can't stand her. Cause she was very intense. You know, That's she great. just, <laughs> if she thought something about you, like, forget it. She was going to tell you. And if she didn't, if she bit her tongue, she would tell somebody else and then maybe you'd hear from them. She was one of those, you know, so. <laughs> Perfect. We all need people like that in our lives. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, and then 1980, I mean, three years after the travel ban is lifted of Cuba, I mean, she returns to Cuba for the first time ever. And this would be the first trip of many. I mean, she begins to then focus on black and white rather than color for her still and moving images. I mean, we tell us about her going back to Cuba in 1980. I mean, what was this like for her and how did she use this place for her work? Yeah, going back to Cuba became like an obsession for her, which I can totally understand because that's what it felt like to me. And I wasn't yeah. even born there. Her mother actually went to Cuba the year prior. So once her father was released from prison because he became a political prisoner, he was arrested um, by the government for working for the CIA, sending information and once they caught up with him and, you know, put him in prison, he sent his wife and son to the United States and they kept waiting for him to be released. And it just wasn't happening, you know. So finally, when that happened, a year later, his wife, her mother went back to Cuba to see the family, you know, and it was back then it's like you didn't do that. But it's like if that's where you're born and that's your family, it's like, how can you deny that? It's like you're missing part of yourself, Yeah, you know. So. Once her mother went and it was really her parents who really said, you know, you should go, you need to go. And Cuba was, that's what her work is all about, was about connecting back to the homeland, about going home, right? So it's like, at some point, will you get to go home? And then what happens once you do go home? You know, what will happen to your work? It's like, if that's your whole theme, connecting with nature, connecting with the earth, what, you know, connecting with your homeland. And once you go home, does it close that chapter and then yeah. you move on? Or does it just continue on another level? Yeah. So. I mean, I know from my own experience of the first time that I went there and then the subsequent trips that I made there, that feeling of reconnection yeah. and belonging yeah. and being surrounded by family who's just so happy to see you and welcoming. And just for her, that would have been a hundred thousand fold times. The first time that I went to Cuba was my mother's first trip back in 40 years. Wow. So I had that experience with her. 
we shared that together. So it's like, because of that, I can feel how Anna must have felt that yeah. first trip back of just all the emotions. And it was hard to see the family that was there and how they had gone through things versus the family that had come here. It was really the family had been split by this. Yeah. You know, what was once like this, this unit growing up with these cousins. The upstairs, downstairs. <laughs> yeah. You know, to be separated from that and then reunited. I mean, it changes things. Yeah. So for her being there, it's like she was possessed to have to do work in Cuba. It was like, I have to make my mark here. Yeah. And she was able to accomplish it, which is amazing because at that time, technically they, they considered her an American. Yeah. Like they would think of her as an American. Like she wasn't Cuban anymore, which is crazy. Because like in Europe, it's not like that. Like, you know, if you're French, I, my neighbor's French, you know, it's like, if you're French, you're always French and you're accepted, you know, but when you're Cuban, you leave, that's, that's it. Now you're American. That's just the experience that that I've had and that I know she had as well because of the people who talk about her, like the Cubans who I interviewed, like who I've talked with about her, they talk about her as if she is other. So oh, she wow. became this person who didn't belong anywhere anymore. Yeah. And she talks about being between two cultures. Now you are rooted in one country, you, you sprung sprouts in another but where do you fit in anymore? You fit everywhere, right? It's yeah. like, then it's like, you have to become universal because otherwise you won't survive, right? Because it's like, if you have no home anymore, if they don't accept you here, you don't really fit in there. Where do you fit in? Mm. It's like, okay, I fit in everywhere. Yeah, I love this quote. She says, if my branch is North American, my trunk is Cuban. I mean, it just sums up everything. But also, I love this idea of her going to the Haruko Caves and like finding these places that are so difficult to get to. Oh, I yes. mean, God knows how she <laughs> found them in the 80s. I mean, if you couldn't find them easily in the 2010s, then I mean, and making her mark on that and making her physical stamp on that place. Yes. I mean, it was definitely an obsession for her and then yeah. it later became my obsession when I wanted to find them and that's where she she made these iconic works the Repestrian series which she was very proud of of those works you know because it was like the first time that she was printing works on a larger scale she wanted the works to feel when you saw them in the gallery she wanted to feel like you were there in the site she really felt like she accomplished that with those large-scale photographs and from that point on she only printed at that size because she had a grant so she had the funding i mean you have to remember too it's like she was not famous nobody knew who she was unless they were from air or they were in her circle she was just another working artist yeah so it's not like she had like all this money to be printing all her work and showing all her work she wasn't in you know big museum shows or anything like that totally i mean and then in 1983, she then left New York and her travels to Cuba to be given a fellowship and residency at the American Academy in Rome. I mean, how did this period redefine her creative process? I mean, was this the first time she came to Europe? She had actually applied for the, the Prix de Rome a few years prior and didn't get it. So when she got it, she was really excited. It really meant that you were on your way, you yeah. know, that you were being recognized as an artist and she was going to have a studio, which she'd never had a studio before. And she never needed a studio. Yeah. You know, she did all her work. The earth nature. was her studio. <laughs> exactly. You know, but her, before that period, she was starting to create objects, you know? So in the early eighties, she started transitioning slowly. She started doing painting on a mate paper, which is basically paper made from bark. And she also started making sculptures. Like she actually worked on a, a floor piece while she was in New York city she was in a show at PS1 with MoMA that was curated wow. by Nancy Sparrow. Oh my God, cool. And yeah, she was trying to figure out how to make these kind of pieces she was doing in the mud and in the earth, but make them into sculptures and have them be transportable. 
So she continued that when she went to Rome. She won the Prix de Rome in 1983. People didn't really love them as much as she had hoped. They kind of were like, eh, you know. Like, I, and I think it's because they weren't, it was like so different from anything she had done. Yeah, but good for her know? just reinventing everything and just constantly yes. just pursuing and pioneering that process. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I love them. I think they're yeah. beautiful. And she even like took materials from different places like sand from Valadero and like she had somebody bring back some dirt from Egypt because oh she was God. wanting to make sure that the magic from the location was in the pieces and also making something tangible as well like the tree of life it's an actual sculpture like obviously all of her silhouettes are sculpture but they're ephemeral they're sort of transitory this is it you can you can touch it you can feel it exactly yeah I mean she was really really excited about this direction she was going in. I mean, at the end, she got a grant. She was going to do this installation in Los Angeles at this park there. And so she was working on that in Rome. She loved Rome so much. It became her new home. It's like once she went to Italy, she didn't go back to Cuba anymore. It's like Italy became her new home. It's like she really felt a connection to the place, to the people. She learned Italian. She took Italian lessons. Like she really just wanted this to become her new home. You know, she, she finally found a place that would accept her for who she was. So the second year, she rented a little house there at the American Academy, and, and they gave her a bigger studio. And that's where she started doing these, these huge pieces out of the trunks, and these beautiful like kind of like silhouettes on the tree trunks burned in with gunpowder. And just also just revisiting those three steps back, four steps back, you know, what she yes. was doing at Iowa. Back to 1976 with her against yeah. the tree. Yeah. You know, instead of now it's her, it's a burned in gunpowder yes. on the tree or, or going even back to the energy charge. It's like now we're seeing that as a sculpture. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it's frozen in time and space. But, yes. but, I, but I want to now kind of shift to talking about your work on Anna. And I know that... 30 years after she lived in Rome, you actually visited this place. I mean, how did it feel to be there? And did you feel Anna's presence? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everywhere I went, I just imagined her at the market arguing about the price of the tomatoes <laughs> and which gelato place did she like best or caught, you know, she was obsessed with espresso. So I'm sure she had, you know, her favorite places to get the espresso. But I mean, really being at the American Academy, I mean, it was obvious why she would love the place so much. I mean, it's really also interesting when you think about her progression from the beginning to her time at the American Academy, how she always had like a university. But I mean, that was very smart of her for the kind of art that she did, because, you know, if you have to document your work, you need a camera. So in the beginning, it's like she would be using cameras from the university until eventually she had enough money from different grants to to purchase her own cameras. And so for her to be surrounded by artists you have people you can talk to, even if you're not talking about your work, which she really didn't do that much. I mean, I talked to over 50 people oh my God. for my documentary, which yeah. is why I'm still finishing it, you know, because <laughs> it's so much information. But it's like, she really didn't talk about her work that much. In a way, too, it's like, first of all, you're giving your secrets away, right? Yeah. But also, you don't even know what those secrets are, yeah. right? Because it's like instinctive. It's coming from like deep within you. Like when you're connected to something that powerful and that meaningful, it's like, you don't know how to describe it. Yeah, being there was amazing. I mean, I just... I didn't think I was going to discover anything new because at that time, even though it was eight years ago, or there had been so much research done and there was, had already been so many retrospectives. I just felt, okay, we've discovered everything. I'm just going to go and kind of document. And then as it turned out, I discovered so many things. I was just, oh, wow, this is so exciting. She found the perfect person to continue on with this because, <laughs> you know, and she knew it. I know she did. I know she whispered <laughs> things in my ear when I was little. I know it. <laughs> she brainwashed me. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so fascinated to know when did this begin for you? I mean, when did this kind of journey of 
documenting her and kind of going out and actually saying, I'm going to make these documentaries happen for you? Well, I've always wanted to tell her story, yeah. you know, as a filmmaker. From the moment that she passed away, I just, I knew that I, I had to tell her story, but I just never felt ready. My mother had been doing this work for, you know, for years and she just had so much information. And when I would hear her speak and realizing, oh my God, I don't know that. And there's so many things I don't know. I'm never going to get to be like her. So it was a process. You know, it's like when I first started, they brought me in with the videos. And then when my mother wasn't able to do this as much because she became ill, she asked me, can you just step in for a little bit and help until I can do this again? I said, sure, of course. You know, then of course it turned out like, oh, now you're doing this. Okay, great. So I guess I'm doing this. I mean, she died in 1985. How is her legacy remembered? It's, I mean, I feel like she would be so happy to know what's become of her work and how her sister really championed it from the beginning. I mean, she could have put it all in a suitcase and put it in the closet. I know that happens sometimes, but my mother was felt her. She felt Anna demanding, make sure that my work is seen like I wasn't done, you know, I wasn't finished and people need to see this. And my mother really took that on. I mean, she sacrificed so much of herself to do that, you know, and she was so blessed by meeting Mary Sabatino at Gallery Le Long, who also took on the work. And the two of them had this vision that sprouted and blossomed to what it is now. So it's it's really, I mean, it's she's been so fortunate that people have responded in the way they have. And it's, it's really because it's so timely. It speaks to so many different generations um, and so many different themes in her work that people can relate to. And again, going back to what I said earlier about what I feel has become my mission is just ensuring that people really understand the work, you know, on a deeper level and that they don't get caught up in the, the kind of sensationalized version of the work. It's just very shallow and it's, it's disappointing. You know, it's, it's not just disappointing to me, but I feel like to Anna, because that is not what she wanted to leave behind. She was looking at something so much bigger than that. These huge universal themes of connection, how we're all connected through time and space. You know, we're without borders and we're all here together and we need to be in this together. So that's, that's become my mission to remind people. And what do you think she's taught you? She's taught me never to give up and to listen to myself, to really follow my instincts because it's like when, she talked about this as well, like how when you're, when you're in it, you feel it and you don't question it. You don't doubt it. You're just doing it. And when you stop and your mind, your, your brain, your intellect jumps in, that's when it's going to go bad. It's like it's, you're off track. So just when you're in it, you know, instinctively, don't question it, just do it. Raquel, Cecilia Mendieta, thank you so much. I can't express what a joy it has been to speak to you today. Thank you so much. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if Anna were around today or you could revisit a time in her life when she was alive, would there be anything that you would have said to her? You know, I've been thinking about that and I feel like I talk to her all the time, especially when I'm in nature. Yeah. I take walks in the woods and I, I talk to her actually out loud sometimes and I wonder, I wonder if anyone's going to be like, what's this crazy woman like talking to the trees or whatever? But it's, you know, really I the one thing that I've, said to her and that I always continued to ask is just let me know that I'm on track with what you want me to be doing for you and your legacy I just want to make sure that I'm doing what she would have wanted yeah so I really I try and stay true to that and listen to her voice thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for having me it was really a lot of fun 
Thank you all so much for listening to the 67th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Raquel Cecilia Mendieta on the trailblazing Anna Mendieta on the 36th anniversary of her death. It was so fascinating and incredible to hear about Anna's life and work, her zest for learning and just constantly reinventing the wheel. As always, I have included all the links in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Vilelich and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 